I know that you as a church are getting ready to celebrate your 75th anniversary. Uh, I met you 44 years ago, 1979, when I was starting my first year in seminary down in Los Angeles and sitting in class after class of taught by very small, smart people who felt like they had no understanding of the local church at all. And one of our professors handed us a little book called Body Life. And on the front of it, it had what looked like white cutout paper dolls. And it talked about how to engage everybody in the church for the mission of the church. And I carried that book around me for years in seminary. And every time some dry lecture would happen, I'd say, what about this? So thank you. And it's fun to be here 49 years later and see that you are engaged in studying the book of Acts, which is such a profound book between Luke and Acts, which were both written by the same man. Those two books account for 28% of the New Testament. So when you take the time to slow down and study what's happening in here, some pretty amazing things are happening. I'd like to put this morning the book of Acts in context, and then I'll tell you a little bit about the work I do, uh, that we do, that is hoping to continue some of that work. In the context of what's happening today, in the last three years, we have all emerged out of what was, is often referred to as an unprecedented time. COVID has now become shorthand for global pandemic, racial unrest, political turbulence, and all the things. And we're emerging out of that, I think, I hope, taking a time to think about, are our churches the kind of churches that Jesus had in mind? So during COVID, because there was nothing else to do, I reread Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, among binging on Netflix, let's be honest, in the Message Bible. When I closed it, I was struck by the fact that the way most of our churches look so far away from the church Jesus imagined. What ended up happening so much is there was this um, very consumer mindset in most of our churches. When we come, we're looking for what can we get out of it, which there's a percentage of that, but that's not the whole. When I read it, I was struck by, and I've had a number of pastors in the Bay Area say this to me over the last couple of years, I had no idea my people's primary allegiance was to their political party, not to Jesus. When did politics become primary and Jesus become tertiary? What do we do with that? And then how the American dream everything up and to the right, everything shiny and successful, everything turning out the way we want. How did that infiltrate the church? And so how do we look at some things that could be corrective of sorts? And the book of Acts is very helpful in that, that can adjust our churches to look different. For example, when you read the New Testament, do you understand that Jesus spoke more about serving the poor then he spoke about prayer and what it means to be born again, put together. So do our churches reflect that? Because here's what's happening right now while we're all listening to this and having a worship experience in here. Within a stone's throw of this church, there are single moms wondering if they have enough money to put food on the table this week. There are elderly people living in trailer parks. There are students who are unsure about their future. There are business leaders who have gone down the cul-de-sac of success and found it not to be as satisfying as they thought. And they need for our churches to get it right. They need for us to be showing the kingdom message in ways that are compelling 
the way the kingdom was meant to do. Besides serving the poor in a post-Christian culture and realigning ourselves with the church of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, I think we need to take very seriously what Paul alluded to a few minutes ago, and that is the intersection of faith and work, where Dallas Willard says that becomes the primary place of our discipleship, the primary place where um, I interact with my team members and make it a better place, we shape culture, but I also get discipled. Years ago, uh, before I went to seminary, I was a nurse. I was uh, emergency room nurse, home health, medical surgical, and I remember going to the emergency room one afternoon to work the 3 to 11.30 shift, and patient came in at about 11.29, which by the way is time to go home, don't go to the emergency room at 11.29, and she had the flu, and the doctor picked me to stay late while they gave report. Now, I've been a Christian long enough to know if you're going to sin, you sin on the inside where nobody else can see you. And when he said, can you stay late? I said, I'd be glad to. And inside I thought, why me? I've been working double shifts. I'm tired. There's six other nurses going home. I want to be one of those nurses going home. So I took her history and physical. I was frustrated because she had the flu. You don't go to the emergency room with the flu. Did I mention that? And her husband and her two little kids had left the day before. This was down in L.A. to go up to Mammoth. She had to stay back a day late because she had to work. She got sick. And I'm just thinking inside, go to your regular doctor in the morning. I need to go home. And then I ran some blood work. I waited a few minutes, and the doctor said, hey, could you just wait till the lab results come back up on the fax? If you don't know what a fax machine is, Google it. It's a big machine that used to sit in. You plug it in, paper would come out, all kinds of information would be there. And so I went over there to look at the results, just thinking, okay, now I get to go home. And I was just stopped. Because she didn't have the flu. She had fulminating leukemia. She never left the hospital. She was there for six weeks. Her sister got there by three in the morning. Her husband and kids came first thing in the morning when they got the news. I visited her every day I was working for the next six weeks. She was unrecognizable at the end. And I drove home that night, fighting back the tears, and I felt like God was just gently saying to me, how long will you need to understand that I put somebody in front of you tonight? I was only asking for 10 or 15 minutes. I needed you with the best spirit that you had to be present with this woman. You got there eventually, but that's not where you started. We need discipleship in our faith and workplaces. Let me ask you a question. How many times in the Bible do you think an occupation is mentioned? Joseph the carpenter, somebody's a farmer. Just turn to the person next to you for 10 seconds. Give me a number. What number in the Bible are occupations mentioned? Go. No, a lot is not a number. <laughs> okay, 10 seconds is up. This is the part where you talk. Let's have two or three of you call out a number. What's a reasonable number? Two, 10, 50, 20, 1,000. Okay. Uh, if you have something to write with, you can Google that also, writing utensil, or put it in your phone. Write down 543, 543. The word love is mentioned 761 times. 543. Now write a three next to the other three. 5,000. 433 times in the Bible an occupation is mentioned. This is teaching us that, as Dallas Willard said, our primary place of discipleship 
is our work, both to help other people to shape culture and to learn and change ourselves. Uh, during COVID, the word that got thrown a lot, around a lot is this was unprecedented, three years. As my husband would say, if you read history, this wasn't unprecedented at all. Global pandemic, check. Racial unrest, been there, done that. Political turbulence, still happening. No, what's unprecedented is the gospel. That's what's unprecedented. And that's what churches have a chance to reimagine and re-engage with and dust ourselves off and say, lean in. So for the next few minutes, I want to talk about Acts and then some of the work we do in TBC to help revitalize the vision for all of you to think about what can be possible. So Acts starts off, if any of you have ever studied the book of Acts, you open a book and what there is is a map of Paul's missionary journeys. Four trips, four different colors. It tells the story of the end of Jesus' three and a half years and the movement towards gathering in the upper room the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and scattering them, and then Paul traveling all around the known world to take the gospel from a historically Messianic Jew leading it to a mostly non-Jewish church. It's a fascinating story. Now, Jesus not only ended abruptly, he ended confusingly. For example, one of the uh, disciples was Simon the Zealot. The only reason Simon said yes to follow Jesus was he believed Jesus' number one priority was the overthrow of the Roman government, which it was not. But when three and a half years ended and the Roman government was still in power, he was confused. He was probably also confused that Matthew the, zealot, Matthew the tax collector who worked for the Roman government was on the same team as he was. There's a whole sermon in teamwork and working with people that you don't like, but that's for another day. They were confused. In John chapter 21, it said that the disciples, even after a couple of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, had discouragingly gone back to fishing. They didn't know what was happening. And so all of a sudden, there was this convergence of conditions of gathering in the upper room, Pentecost, being shot out all, shot out all over the world. Something exponential happened. So what's your missionary journey from where you live? Where are the trails and the paths and the routes that you follow for work with children, coffee with a friend, to exercise, to be out in nature, to run your errands? I want you to think in your mind, what's your missionary journey? Now you won't do it like Paul. You probably won't get beaten up or take a boat. It's okay. Where are you planting your seeds? Where are you intersecting with people? Where who you are as a church and as a follower of Christ will begin to plant seeds in a really significant way. When there is a convergence of conditions like we had in COVID, something exponential happens, very similar to why we, it is that we live in the Silicon Valley. What is it that years ago caused the educational institutions of Berkeley and Stanford with their leaning towards innovative and entrepreneurial PhD programs and research and development that began to bring knowledge out that had all kinds of interesting implications alongside of then venture capitalists who started to say, hey, we're going to fund things differently. Um, the people that fund it are not going to be the only owners. The people that are doing the work, those leaders and teams, they're going to be the owners. They're going to be committed to an idea. And then this renegade leader type of person that was willing to try everything, this convergence of conditions that none of us could have orchestrated happened. 
and something really unique with pluses and minuses has emerged from it. It's not unlike the tragedy we've seen this last week in Maui, where the hurricane and whatever ignited these fires and perhaps the lack of emergency systems that got activated and a small island and no place to go caused a perfect storm that now has tragedy and seeds of hope and rebuilding in it. There was an axe, and there is now today a convergence of conditions. We didn't create them, but we need to pay attention to them. So I want to spend a few minutes looking at these in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. God says to the early church, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem where you already live. And they're thinking, yes, that's where all the Jewish people are, of course. But then he goes on to disturb them a little bit. Also in Judea and Samaria, not where they wanted to go. You know the history there. These people were unclean. They were to be avoided at all costs. Wait a minute, you put them in the same sentence with Jerusalem? I don't like the way this is going. And then to the ends of the earth. Well, they didn't even know what the ends of the earth were at that point. So again, kind of confused. Well, what were part of the things that happened following that edict in Acts chapter 1 that began to begin an emerging convergence of conditions? The first one was this, in the convergence of conditions. There was the stoning of Stephen. We're only eight chapters in. Pentecost has happened, and just a few chapters later, Stephen, who was a bit like Nathaniel, without guile, was preaching. And the Jewish people, when they heard about the Messiah, were so angry, they started stoning him. And much like Jesus' prayer on the cross, Stephen's reply was very much asking God to receive his spirit, knowing he was going to die, and asking for God not to hold this sin against those people. And then as a little parenthetic, we're going to see in just a minute another convergence of conditions. Saul was watching this and approving of this and accelerating and amplifying it. But with Stephen, it became very clear that while the first wave of messages was to go to the Jewish people, it was not going well. They were rejecting it. They were rejecting it to the point of killing people and persecuting people. Second thing that happened on the heels of this was the conversion of Saul. That Saul went from being a zealot to making sure that this new group of people that had a Jewish Messiah but a new message would be snuffed out. To him walking alone and encountering Jesus in a very profound way and Jesus saying to him, why do you persecute me? It's interesting he doesn't say, why do you persecute the church? Because Jesus is so aligned with the church. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And a conversion of somebody who was so outside of who the target audience was of this new movement. And then the third convergence of conditions was the inclusion of Cornelius. This one was rough because they were moving away from it being a Jewish ministry to where Peter, who was completely given to the message to the Jews, had a vision, had a dream. Had God come to him and say, hey, you've heard for thousands of years that certain foods are unclean. I'm here to tell you today that the people that eat those unclean foods are not unclean. 
and that Cornelius, you need to go meet him. And then Peter finally realizing God does not show favoritism. God was getting ready to open up the doors of the kingdom, which to us in the rearview mirror sounds very reasonable. To these people was very disturbing and uncomfortable. So let me take that same thing and just put a few learning lessons here, and then we're going to turn our attention to John chapter 17 and some of the work of TBC, and that's this that there was in this convergence of conditions an emerging of unlikely leadership. Peter was the disciple who Jesus most publicly rebuked. Honestly, at the end of the Gospels, when Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom over to Peter, well, let me ask you, any of you are in business, how many of you have given a promotion to a team member where you have over and over and over again had to correct their behavior? When Jesus holds out the keys of the kingdom of Peter, I just want to slow motion go, no, anybody but Peter. It's just unthinkable. What did he know? Unlikely leadership. Saul, you're kidding me, right? You're telling me that the guy that just two chapters ago was persecuting and killed Stephen, you tell me he had a spiritual experience and he's going to be our new leader? I don't think so. No. Years ago, John and I were on staff at a church in Chicago, which I don't recommend. Midwest is a terrible place to live, but that's again for another sermon. Um, I led for the last five years a ministry to the college and post-college ministry. It was one of the first Gen X ministries in the country. I didn't start it, but I took it over. And we had a guy that volunteered there. His name was Larry Clark. Larry was probably 15 or 20 years older. He had had a long career in IBM. Larry had taken early retirement. Larry was quirky as heck. Larry was so quirky. Uh, Larry took a early retirement from IBM and then one or two days a week substitute taught to make some money. He lived so frugally. I one time asked him, Larry, how do you afford to eat? He got a big smile on his face and he said, you know, if you dumpster dive at the Jewel grocery store after midnight, you can get some really good food. <laughs> Did I mention he was quirky? He lived on nothing so that he could come in our team and volunteer almost 40 hours a week to disciple young men and women. He was amazing. He had a nose for picking out somebody who was ready. He had a way to challenge somebody that wasn't. He loved them. He gave them books to read. He brought them together for studies. He encouraged them. He took them places to just simply have fun. He was just a really remarkable person. My boss told me under no circumstances should you ever hire him to work on staff at this church. I'm like, huh. Well, I might not, but I'm going to give him bonuses and I'm going to watch him because he's doing such great work. Long story, we had a gathering for all of our small group leaders and Larry was out jogging with some of his guys and I was out having breakfast and one of my staff members came over and said, you need to come. Larry's been in an accident. And so I went over with her. He had been running, and his guys went ahead because Larry was not in the best of shape. He was only running to help disciple. And Larry had been hit by a bus. And he was gone by the time I got there to the ER. But having been an ER nurse, uh, what was left on the asphalt made me very worried about his health. By the time I got there, he had passed away. Uh, most of the kids in our ministry had never 
seen anybody die. And so those that wanted to, I took them back in groups of three or four for seven or eight hours and we sat with Larry's body. That Sunday, Saturday and Sunday, when we did our post-college college ministry in the gymnasium, we did a service called A Life Well Lived. And the stories were so quirky and hilarious. But one time, I invited anybody who had a very direct discipleship program with Larry to stand up. And in a room of about 800, um, maybe 20 or 30 stood up. And then I invited everybody else to look around. And of the 20 that are standing up, how many of you have been discipled by the ones that were standing up. Well, you can imagine where this was going. By the third or fourth iteration, two-thirds of the room was standing up. Quirky, unlikely, effective, and deeply memorable. Every one of you is called to be engaged in this mission of this church. Every one of you is an unlikely leader, and honestly, Scripture is full of unlikely, reluctant leaders who I believe make the best leaders. Another convergence that we just talked about, the way I would put it, is uncomfortable inclusion. I don't know how we got to where we got, but we have turned the other into an enemy. We have made, for example, political discussions tearing us apart. I have a cousin who lives in another state. I love him dearly. He's like a brother. He and I could not be on further ends of the spectrum. Here's what we don't do. We don't we're just not going to talk about it. No, we talk about it. We argue. I listen to his point of view and I say, grandmother would roll over in her grave and you're an idiot. And he says, well, let me tell you why I think you're an idiot. And then he gives me his whole thing. And then we laugh and we change the subject. And when we hang up, we remind each other that everything we talked about is secondary and tertiary. And what really matters is our love for each other and Jesus. Christians ought to be the least offendable people on the planet. We ought to be able to listen and listen well and understand and engage and radically and promiscuously include because that's what Jesus did. Jesus, when Jesus first got on earth, he stood at the margins with marginalized people and he said, this is the center. You who are standing, you religious leaders who are standing in the center and think you're in the center, you're not in the center. This over here is the center. How do we re-engage with that perspective of where the center is? And then the last one is unrelenting obstacles. Again, in our American culture, we expect, we want, we, we work after everything turning out just the way we want it. Even our prayer life is around those things. And of course we want that. We were created in our DNA. It was for a perfect world. We have whispers of Eden in us. And we live in a broken world. I tell God on a regular basis, there are two things that were not good ideas. Adult children and this concept of being made for a perfect world and living in a bad world. Just too much work. They're not worth it. Sorry. I hope you understand sarcasm. Um, but we will have unrelenting obstacles. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. John 21, someone is going to lead you to where you do not want to go. In this world, you will have tribulation. And again, not to put every single little thing into the category of persecution. No, no, no. China, Christians, they are getting persecuted. We have obstacles. And we should clear-eyed expect them and ask the very important question, Jesus, are you with me in them? Because that's 
where the difference happens. Now, at the end of his ministry, Jesus did a couple of weird things in his three and a half years. Uh, He really did. This one is at the top of the list for me, maybe the top three. He had his last public prayer, and it's recorded in John chapter 17. He said this publicly. My prayer is not for them alone, my disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That prayer right there 2,000 years ago, he was praying for those of you in this room, that all of them may be one. Father, like you and I are one. May they also be in us so that the world will believe that you have sent me, so that the world will believe. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. For why? So that the world will know you have sent me. Oneness, unity, is a reflection of the kingdom of God. It is an apologetic. It is an unstoppable force. Why in the world would Jesus, who never prayed or talked about unity anywhere in his three and a half years, why did he save his last public prayer for this topic? Because there is in uncommon unity an unstoppable force. Why in the first verse of the next chapter does Satan have him on the way to the cross? Because I believe Satan heard and saw all the other things Jesus did and said, we have a way to stop that. I can explain that. We can get around that. This unity thing? Uh Uh-uh. This releases a power from heaven that I can't stop, so I will take him to the cross to stop him. We have to take this unity thing very seriously, this uncommon unity. Uh, So in our work at TBC, we work through three strategic streams. The first one is unity, unify. Now, here's the deal. Pastors and people love unity on paper. It's when you really have to do it that they don't like it, and they back out like I did when I was a nurse. Very Christian, so you can't tell there's something wrong. I say, this is great. Okay, you're a pastor. Can you work with him? You know, I, I believe in unity, but here's why I can't work with him, his doctrine on this issue. Okay, who doesn't give everybody a pass? Okay, can you work with her? Oh, she's great. Yeah, but you know, the whole women, I can't, I can't work with her. Oh, you like unity on paper. Yeah, that's where I like it. I worked for 11 years with a leadership consultant in business called Patrick Lencioni. And one of the things I loved about Patrick is he talked about a core value is not a core value until it inflicts pain. And when it inflicts pain and you continue to practice it, you know it's a core value. Unity will cost. Unity will be hard. Well, I don't agree with them on those six topics. Uh Uh-huh. And how are y'all getting along around Jesus? Oh, we're good on Jesus. Great, great. So when it comes to unity, we really believe in the power of unity, and it's taken us a long time. But eight and a half, well, I've been there eight years, nine and a half years in, of the Protestant evangelical churches, and not fond of that word evangelical anymore. We're gonna have to find a new one, but I don't know what that word is. So if you have one, please let me know. But of all those churches in the Bay Area, of 11 counties, 256 cities, we have 44% of the churches in our networks. 
44%. My boss the other day said, you act surprised. I said, I am surprised because the denominator kept changing. The first list we got was 7,500 churches in the Bay Area and included liquor stores, synagogues, and YMCAs. So we had to data scrape many, many times with people much smarter than me to get to the right number, which is closer to 3,200. We have 44% of them, and the core of them is encouragement and prayer and relationship. And Paul mentioned uh, sustainability in the pastorate is difficult. This is a very important role these monthly gatherings play to help them not see each other as competitors, but also as supporters and encouragers of each other. And then that core is designed to then move them towards collective impact. What can we do from time to time together for the city that nobody else can do? So this power of unity um, is starting slowly, slowly, as everything does, do not despise the day of small things, to start to change the landscape. There's a convergence of conditions happening. With Amplify, we work with nonprofit leaders and churches around issues like foster care and homelessness and education. And we're trying to look at systemic solutions. I've had um, principals and superintendents when they tell me most churches, and again, there's nothing wrong with this. We all have to start somewhere. Most churches nearby will paint a mural and do a backpack drive. And then they invite me over to a closet and they open it up and it's stuffed full of backpacks. And every single one of them, when I ask the question, will tell me then what keeps you awake at night, they say one of two things or both. Third grade reading levels, which are predictive. So how does the church show up to tutor kids in kindergarten, first, and second so that we can guarantee that third grade they're testing out? If they don't test out at third grade, at grade level, they never catch up. The data shows they never catch up. And teacher retention. So how do we use backpack drives and murals to build trust over time and say, hey, we'd like to help with some of this other deeper stuff if we can. Foster care. Only 20% of any foster care system needs foster to adopt. There are so many other pieces on the spectrum of babysitting, interview skills, when they age out. How do churches look at the whole of the issue and come together in a collaborative way to make an impact? I really hope when we've been dead and gone 300 years, some sociologist and archaeologist excavates the Bay Area and says, here's what we're finding consistently. There were connections between the social ills and the churches in this community, like the likes of which we've never seen. That's an unstoppable force. And then finally, multiply. With multiply, we look at church planting, which Tim Keller says is the number one way to evangelize any area. We have a fund where a new church planter can apply for up to 20 to 30% of their budget for the first one to five years as a nod to say, we know it's expensive here. We know it's hard here. We know you're going to have to sacrifice a lot to be here. We're working in Explore God also with Alpha to set up churches to say, how do we engage long-term in evangelistic efforts that are post-Christian considerate? And that, I love Paul's phrase, that are engaged in asking questions, not bringing answers. The first Explore God ever got explained to me was, these are all the questions that non-Christians have. And I read the list and I'm like, I guess I'm a non-Christian because I have every single one of them, that we're partners together in this journey, in this pilgrim's progress, and that we all need a place to converse. And then under multiply also sits faith and work. How do we help over time us to see when we show up to work, attend to the patient that you're frustrated with, attend to them, serve them, show up for them. Eight years ago, 
um, eight and a half years ago, I was approached after my consulting time with Lencioni, would I consider putting my hat in the ring for TBC? And I said, no. And there was a lovely adjective in front of it. Uh, absolutely not. My husband's on the board. I see what they do. Unity movements don't do anything. They come together once a year. They have bad chicken lunch. They pray. They pat each other on the back. They think something happened. Nothing happened. And they leave. To which the headhunter said, let me show you the guy who is the chairman. Let me show you his one-page document. And I read it and realized, uh, once again, there are people that are way smarter than me. I am simply never the smartest person in the room, even if I walk into a room all by myself. And I'm reading this document of Unify, Amplify, Multiply and seeing this holistic vision of what the Bay can be. Eventually said yes, quite excitedly, six months later. And then I went into my first 18 months. You'd think, no, I don't want to do this. I'm a reluctant leader. Oh, this looks interesting. I want to do it. I get the job. We're done. We're all ready. Oh, then ushered in 18 months of a startup, which for me, maybe somebody else could have done it better. My first 18 months every morning were three things I said to God. I don't get this. I don't think it's going to work. Pretty sure I'm not the right person. I was Mosesing all over God. And I felt those three things deeply for 18 months. It is hard to be a ins genuinely insecure leader for 18 months and keep going. I'm never the smartest person in the room. I got more perseverance than any three mules you could ever put together. And leaders would say, you know, we've seen people like you come and go. And I would say, fair enough. That must be hard to trust. Check back with, I'll check back in with you three years later because I'll still be here. And then, during those 18 months, the myth that I had been handed when I got into my car to travel around the 11 counties, 256 day, uh, cities of the Bay Area. By the way, I have a 2015 Escape that has 207,000 miles on it and a brand new engine because <laughs> I had to drive so much. But the myth I got handed in the midst of all my insecurities is the Bay Area is very dark. And that's the perspective I went out with. And I'm here to tell you that is not true. It is not dark at all. There are Christians everywhere around the Bay, and our very simple job is to connect with them and build relationships and love them and get to know them, and then convene them and bring them together and collaborate together where our imaginations can start to stir around all these things to say, how do we recapture the unstoppable force of the church in order to catalyze something? I believe God wants to do that in our own lives, I believe he wants to do it in our families, not in, well, that's another sermon, uh, and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our churches. Let's be those people. Let's be those people that on our deathbeds talk wonderfully about our families, about our work, and there was a moment in time I was part of a church that took my breath away. Let's pray. God, your imagination has always been not just so far past ours, but so inspiring to us. And sometimes I just forget. Sometimes in the day-to-day -day living of life, I just settle for routine. And I know I need routine, but I also need imagination. I need to remember that uh, the church you had in mind may look very differently from the churches that we have. And we have to do the work to say, we are going to major in these things and minor in those. And I pray for the Bay Area, 
and especially for PBC, who has been a beacon for 75 years and is still engaging in the book of Acts and stretching themselves, that they would shine as a light and that churches around the Bay Area would join withered hands and hold each other in our brokenness and in our joy and say, we will make the church capture the attention of people who are looking for God and they have no idea that's who they're looking for. In Christ's name, amen.